Thank you. So are the cup. You're welcome. Uh, is that you made? No, uh, Brooke's brother, drummer in our band, made that. He also makes pottery. Cheers. Cheers. Yes, coffee cheers. <laughs> I guess that's not really a thing. Well, you can cheers for everything. Anything. Yeah, I didn't know you're gonna come out from upstairs or downstairs. I just said like, we'll see. It's coming down. So you take orange line normally or? Mm -hmm. Okay, maybe that's the way I, I'm gonna go up. Unless yeah. I had to take Uber. Either way. Well, at 1 p.m. I saw there's a White Sox game right where you got off the red line. So it might be a little bit wow. busy over there. Okay. Either way. Um, I miss you, Pess. <laughs> I know. Those were the days. Are you still getting it because you teach there? No, I have to buy train tickets like everyone else. It's, it's Ventra now. Did you realize that they changed yeah. CTA like to Ventra? V, double V sign, kind of. Okay. I'm going to turn you up a bit more. You're soft-spoken today. <laughs> Am I? <laughs> yeah, I don't have this like typical teacher's voice um, when I teach. Me neither. But, I mean, <laughs> I haven't seen you in, like, 10 years, and I feel like you you always were very self-confident, but I feel like you're even more calm and I? cool. I, I don't know how to see me objectively, so it's interesting to hear. Nobody really does. But you were, like, doing performances I did. Undergrad. I did, yeah. That takes I even a lot took of the class, too. It's because everybody forced me that, okay, you went to SIC, and then this is like one of those art schools that really inter encouraging people to do interdisciplinary, and then you're only doing painting classes. You're always going to take 2D classes, so why don't you try something new? And I was like, all right, I'm going to try. <laughs> That's what I did. Was it fun? It was fun, and I realized that I was never going to be a performer, <laughs> but, I, but it was fun. That's the time I learned a new vocabulary of my life. What Pathetic. <laughs> that that professor crab, ginger crab. She said your performance uh, was pathetic. Part of the critic the word came out and I didn't know what it was and I came home and I checked the dictionary. <laughs> Did she mean it as like a, an objective okay, analytical like, term? The, the movement you just had like 10 minutes ago with this left hand, it was quite, quite pathetic. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and wow. the sad part is that I didn't have the word in my system yet. So you just nodded and said, <laughs> I was okay. Like, okay. <laughs> and I cried at home. <laughs> no, I didn't cry. One thing she did amazing, which I still thank her for it, is to introduce me the dance of darkness, the, the, the dance called Buto. B-U-T-O-H. It's Japanese. Yeah. And then this is international now. And I somehow, some reason, became a friend of one of the Buddha performing kid. And I, I, was, I just became a big fan of him and went to all weird place to see his performance in, like, where is it? Pilsen somewhere. Like, looks like in the middle of nowhere, but when you open the door, there are crowd. Wow. Things like that. And then my professor ginger crab she, he she was 
performing together with him one point too. So it was really uh, amazing to see. Although, as I said, I knew that I'm not going to be a performer, but I have my own respect. What, I- what is the dance of darkness? So it's like the, um, you know, Japanese already have their own traditional dance called No, mm-hmm. a Gabuki dance, you know, like white yeah. costume and then very slow moving and stuff. And then after World War II happened, and they, the group of artists, especially performers, um, had to reflect themselves. So they put the traditional no performance together with the like a deadly darkness aftermath from Hiroshima Nagasaki, and they put mm-hmm. them together, and they got the inspiration from a lot of legendary performer, as if um, Pina Bausch or Fluxus people, and they made their own performing genre. It's like opposite of something like ballet. It doesn't go up and straight. It's more like going snaky and very slow. And then they Mm. do all white um, makeup and usually only wearing like um, only underwear or something very little. And then setup is really dark. And then they do some kind of nightmarish facial expression that you don't actually get to see in like Western theater. It's more like it's about entertainment and garish and I mean some kind of more glamorous. It's the opposite of that. So that's how they started. And now it's really hard to um, define Butoh because that was number of decades ago and now it's a new generation of performers throughout the whole world are doing this thing. Even in Boston they have a Butoh uh, dance academy in the dance studio. I don't know what they do, but it's quite international now. So not just Japanese people are doing it? Not anymore. Okay. That's how it started. But Western people in US and Europe got so quickly so much fascinated and they actually made themselves learn it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does it always have the association to death and tragedy? Is that it's what the a, point it's of it is? The, the essence of it is something dark that you don't want to show in regular day-by-day life. That's mm. the essence of it. So when do you know the like Hollywood version or Japanese Hollywood version movie, like horror movie as if um, The Ring or Grudge, you know how they move the yeah. body? That's actually heavily influenced by the original original Buddha move oh, wow. movement, like move very slow but almost object-like moving. That's mm-hmm. coming from that. Very cool. And it's not all. It's not the purpose of scaring you. It's purpose of showing the other side of the reality that human normally we don't want to see. Do you know um, the singer Sia? Of course. Do you think some of her music videos where the I th- young girl Maddie Ziegler dances all I think that is, that is uh, in a similar line. It's not the same, but it has a lineage of connection a little yeah. bit. But she successfully made it pop. Right. I think. And oh, also, I don't know if you know the 90s music video of uh, Madonna called Nothing Really Matter. It's really crazy that, that she wear a Japanese kimono with a white um, makeup and then red makeup on the eye part. And then she's holding a water with a plastic bag as if like a baby. 
and mm-hmm. all these crazy Asian dancers are running around with a lunatic face. And I think that it's a direct reference from Butoh. I'll have to look that it's up. It's from her um, Ray of Light album. Okay. Yeah. You're a big Madonna fan? I am. Now I'm a little bit disappointing, but I still <laughs> decide to be remain as a fan for now. Yeah, she has some great hits in her career. I don't know what she's done lately. Oh, I, I, I follow all of her newest music. Mm-hmm. Actually, 2016 was the first time I got to go her concert. That was a good one. That album was the last good album. It's called Rebel Heart. What, did you see her in Boston? Yeah. It was a world tour. You know, uh, I'm very rude again. I did not even introduce you. So let me do that real quick. <laughs> That's uh, fine. So this is the art cast, but current working title is The Paint Bucket. But since our guest Ooh. today is Yoan Han... Maybe yeah. we should call it the X-Acto Knife and the Yupo paper. Oh, that's wonderful. Somebody called me a drawer with a knife. So this is quite, quite the same line, almost. So I just said your, your westernized name, Yoan Han. In Korea, it would be Han Yoan, wouldn't it? Yes, th- we have a last name first. We call last name first. But as an international artist, you, you choose the last name last. Yes, I was doing even worse thing in uh, my life in California, 2006. When I came into... Did you have into, a different name entirely? Well, I went to my auntie's studio. She's, she's also an artist. She went to um, San Francisco Art Institute, sculpture major, and I was actually her student for a little while. And ever since I went to her studio, she just told me, your name is John, John Han, because Johan is the John the Baptist in Catholicism, so... Oh, and I was, I was just having no filter and then no idea what that means, and then okay, I mean John, I know John, but okay, I have English name, and I took the class in Bay Area, California, um, in community college, and my really amazing professor, who I still keep in touch with, who teaches drawing, painting, watercolor, figure drawing, everything, and his name is John Commissar. And he saw the roster of me and then, okay, Johan. And I said, yes, I'm John. And no, I'm John. You're Johan. And <laughs> it, that was the moment I started to, you know, like feel a little confused. But the, he kept calling my own name. But way later, after I um, adjust to life in U.S. everything in a few years, and I was thinking, why do I have to do things for them? Like, Yoan is not even a difficult name. I don't need to do the atypical American name. So after I came to Chicago, SIC, that's when I abandoned John, and I went back to Yoan. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I never even knew the John thing. It does sound weirdly similar to Yoan, but I never even made the connection. Yeah, my dad, Bedroom, my mom, Mariana, my sister, Elizabeth, my brother, Joseph, although they also have their own Korean name. But in the Catholic Church, they use the Latin name. Wow. They don't use Korean name in the Catholic Church. Are their names in Korean similar to the names they only, use? Only my brother. So in, in English, it's Joseph, but in Korean, Yosep. Yosep? Yeah, more like Y sound, not like 
J sound. How would you spell that in like Y O S E O P? Yosef. Okay. Like my that name's Y, it's spelled by Y O too. That is pretty close to Joseph. <laughs> well, when you go to coffee shop, I, I say my name's Yoan. Nine out of ten people in the coffee shop they write as a J. Because they feel they think it's a Germanic. So it has to oh. be J instead of Y. Oh, like Johan. Yeah. Exactly. That's what they Interesting. think. <laughs> you know, I there's a lot of Korean students at SCIC and Chinese students. And they it's about 50-50. Some just use their original name and some choose a America westernized name. Do you have thoughts on that? Do you try to encourage students to just use their real names if that happens? Or? It's, I, I should be a little discreet, but I am encouraging them to use their own name unless it's super difficult for people to pronounce. Even yeah. then, I think it's okay to just say to your professor, oh, this is my name. I want you to say my name as it is. Yeah. And also, when I teach students, I also make sure that... So you said this, like Jennifer, but then in your roster, it's this, mm-hmm. like something else. Are you sure you want me to call you Jennifer? Or what's your prefer- preferring name? I do that too, because of my experience, that I had to make the U.S. people convenient, which I thought I don't have to, but I didn't know back then. Yeah, I think it's a powerful statement to just say, this is my name, I'll help you learn it. Because I, I often need a lot of repeats of like saying it, them saying it to me to catch the pronunciation if it's a word I'm unfamiliar with. Yeah, I don't want to go s- too much deeper, but I just have to briefly mention that we're still living very much like post-colonial world. Yes, absolutely. And then I think this is one little thing I can do and I can encourage people to do. If they feel good about it. I mean, it's yeah. up to the individual in the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. True. Well, um, Yoan is an artist from <laughs> originally Korea. Yeah. But you've been in... When did you come to California? I actually forgot that 2006. you were there. 2006. 2006. And you were... That'd be too young for community college. What, I was what 19. Were you doing? Okay. Oh, I guess that's true. We're pretty much the same age. Oh, you think I'm way younger than you? I'm actually older than you, Dylan. (laughs) Yeah, 2006 just feels so long ago, but I guess it's we were basically adults at that point. (laughs) Yes, yes. So you went right into community college in where in California? Um, Hayward, city of Hayward. And um, the college name was uh, Shabbat College. Huh. Tom Hanks had one semester there. <laughs> nice. That's what I heard. <laughs> and then you transferred to SAIC after how long? Like two years or something? Yes, two and a half years. Uh, my first class in SAIC was January 2009. Okay. I started September 2007. So I was there about two years before you. Correct. But we were basically neighbors in advanced painting for a year it was a like, year I think. good one year yes i took I was it there two semesters only two i guess i, I wanted to do it longer too. but um 
my mistake, as I mentioned earlier, from California, um, I took too many studio classes, which was which were transferred to SAC. Oh, so, so I didn't have that many left. I see. Although, in the end, I audited some classes. Nice. <laughs> Always thirsty for knowledge. Yep. <laughs> I made a deal with some of the faculty in my very last semester, which I only had 1.5 credit left, period. <laughs> but you basically took a full schedule of auditing? Like six credit. <laughs> nice. And just to briefly give a little more of your bio, you, you went moved to Boston. You went to MF, the Museum of Fine Arts for your MFA and... No, graduated. I went to Massachusetts oh. College of Art and Design, which is Sorry. competitive school <laughs> to museum school. SMFA I, is our rival. Okay. Yeah, Sorry. It's, it's, it's our neighbor, like next door, literally. Literally next door. Yeah. Kitty Corner. <laughs> so Mass Arts is not affiliated with the museum. That's SMFA, the other school. That's affiliate, that used to be affiliated by the museum. Now it's now they are separated, and Museum School is part of uh, Tufts University now. Let me refer to your very beautiful catalog and your artist, your bio. Oh, thank you for saying that. So you've now, now taught at both of them, MFA and. I Mesa. never taught at the uh, um, Museum SMF, School, SMF. but I, but I teach. I still teach in the museum directly. I museum see. and museum score two different things now, yes. Okay, similar to the Art Institute and SAIC, there's classes through the Art Institute. But SAIC and AIC is still affiliated, but museum and museum school, they kind of separated. Oh. They, they divorced. <laughs> is the MFA like the continuing studies, general public mm -hmm. classes yes, you were talking yes. about? I it's see. called uh, MFA studio art classes, yeah. And Dartmouth too, you've taught it. At. When was that? Dartmouth, it's not like a set class. I just occasionally go for giving a workshop, same as uh, Harvard GSD, Harvard uh, Graduate School of Design. Oh, um, there is a professor I know um, who teaches drawing classes, and she brings me once or twice a year, either uh, making me do water-based workshop or giving me opportunity to criticizing their work for midterm or final crit. Yeah. Nice. And this is the catalog for your show at the Fitchburg Museum of Art? No, it's a for catalog for um, actually promoting my Chase Young Gallery show I just had March to April. But then we started to talk about making the catalog around seven months ago. And then it just got printed right before my most recent solo show started. So it's not all the work I showed in this show, it's more like the last um, five years of retrospect of my work, because I've been showing in that gallery since 2017, and this was my third solo show. Fantastic. I saw the statement from the Fitchburg Art Museum thing, so I thought this was for that show. Well, I specifically asked her the curator to write for me for this catalog because uh, she worked with me five months straight last year and that was my first museum show and she, the curator uh, um, Lauren she was very nice and mm -hmm. I thought that she may be a perfect person to 
write additional writing for me. Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed her statement and the foreword as well by Zoe. Zoe is another person who was at the um, Chase Young Gallery. Okay. By um, the way, if I give you a little uh, information about mass art, it's actually really old school. We just had a 150th year celebration this year. Mm -hmm. um, when Boston was planning the high-level academy, they made mass art and MIT as like a two sisters brothers school. So uh, MIT as a science, mass art as an art. So before mass art, it was actually called Boston Normal School, and then later um, MIT became private and Mass College of Art remained as a public so it's one of very few public government funded art school in the United States Wow yeah. I, I didn't realize that uh, when did it change from Boston Normal School to Mass Art what does that even mean Boston Normal School <laughs> that was a teacher's college so it okay. was a place where they foster art teacher yeah. I see okay and do you, maybe you know the color theorist um, who's classified color as if uh, chroma and value and hue. Um, what's his name? Munsell. Have you heard about the name? Albert no, Munsell. I don't think so. His color theory is still used in certain places. Like, you know, Reese's Candy Cup? Mm -hmm. the, that particular orange, and also the color of French fries in McDonald's, they used to chart of Munsell. And then Munsell is from MassArt. Cool. He's a MassArt person. <laughs> Munsell. Yeah. How do you spell that? M-U-N-S-E-L-L, -L, I think. Okay. So when I teach uh, color, I mention Joseph Arvers and Munsell. Nice. Yeah, for example. Both New England guys, right? Albers was at well, Yale. Albers since in Yale. I mean, he's actually from Europe. Oh, he right. was part of a uh, Bauhaus. That's I right. Yeah. yeah. So you're really in deep with the New England hi history of art and of the United States. That was not my choice. I didn't know after Chicago, I'm going to had to east i didn't know but now i lived there for 11 years what can i say yeah, and you're you're thriving there and i feel I'm, like now you're part of the the fabric of the art scene i'm not dying <laughs> <laughs> let's put it that way thank you for saying the nice word thriving did you know when you were in the program that you wanted to teach so soon after graduating or was it something you that an opportunity came up and you just took it because that's kind of how it was for me. We, we both went to MFA and started teaching soon after that. I never had any idea of teaching. I was thinking, okay, after MFA, I'm going to be a painter who's showing around, and that's all I'm going to do. And the reason why I apply, mass, I mean, mass, not only mass art, the master's program, it was two reasons, two specific reasons. One... It's more reality reason. I didn't want to go back to Korea. Mm -hmm. And then to be able to be in the state continue is just to keep continuous st studying. So if you have the MFA program, you get the um, F1 student visa again. That's one thing. And second thing is 
even if I loved my time in SAIC and then I, it was very beautifully challenging time in artistically, I still felt as if I need to know more about my work and what it is, what it means. Mm -hmm. So artistic practice, I wanted to go more in depth level. And I've informed from my peers and professors, including Dylan, um, grad school can be a good avenue. So that's what I, why I applied. I didn't have zero idea that I ended, in, ended up going to teach so much until the last semester. Yeah, I would have to say I felt the same way. I thought the life after grad school would be like, oh, you start showing in galleries and that's your full-time job, but I didn't realize the, the reality. But would you say you're, you're happy to be teaching so much? <laughs> I keep saying people I want to teach less, but I'm gonna, I got to say that teaching has its own specific rewarding point, I think. Yeah, um, yeah I... I cannot say I love teaching, but I like teaching. Just think some of your students might find this podcast. Why? <laughs> my, my students actually know that. I, I honestly say from time to time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think every student knows that their teachers, it's their job. They're doing their best, but it's not like they're still at work. <laughs> but I really try to teach um, individual student differently. My teaching style is not um, like putting them in the same box and then this is one answer for you to grow. I try to find, first of all, what they are good at. It mm -hmm. can be color, it can be composition, it can be um, you know, value system, whatever. I just try to maximize what they are good at, amplifying it, and then try to teach something around it. That's kind of my my gig that's i think what the best teachers do <laughs> i try and you i don't think you would have been this successful at it and taught it so many places and be doing it for this long if you weren't an effective teacher you must get some good evaluations <laughs> well it wasn't in the beginning but i think yeah. i think it, it got good and also i just realized that you cannot satisfy everyone that's true there will be always some kids who's going to complain for any X, Y, Z reason. Yeah, I've, ha I've dealt with a few of those situations. Yeah, even, <laughs> even adult class, um, some people become like my followers. Some people just, okay, this is one-time gig. It was good, but I'm never going to do it again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, did you have any role models? Well, you obviously you have strong bonds with a lot of your faculty members that you had in SAIC, but like growing up, were there, is anyone in your family in academia or in Korea or is there a teaching history that you kind of got this, this skill from? <laughs> I have a few. Um, first, my very first role model was my grandfather, uh, my dad's dad. Mm -hmm. He was a high school art teacher. Oh, okay. And um, there you go. I was very lucky to have 30, 40 color printed books of Monet and all these impressionists and beyond books that he just gave it to me in my age of six. And I started to see those images without knowing who they are or where, what period they are from. And I was exposed to 
fine art early on because of him. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the first inspiration. And also, as I mentioned briefly earlier, my aunt, my mom's sister, was a sculptor. And then she, every time she came to visit Korea, she also artistically um, encouraged me. And my own dad was not in the art field at all, but he always appreciated art and um, bring me to museums. And he ended up becoming good friends of um, my little city community of artists. But where I live is uh, about an hour and a half away from Seoul. It's called mm-hmm. Chuncheon. So yeah, my, my biggest influence growing up was my grandfather, but there were other figures around. Very cool. What kind did your grandfather make art himself in addition to being a, a high school art teacher? His work is still a lot in my apartment um, and other, you know, auntie and uncle's places. He has a ton of sculpture and paintings. But somehow, some reason, he was not interested in showing in the art show and having ambition to have a museum show kind of thing. He just remained as high school art teacher. But then he consistently made bronze sculpture, clay sculpture, charcoal drawing, oil painting. We have a lot of his work still remain, although my grandparents are all passed away now. Yeah, mm-hmm. he, he consistently made. Yeah. And you said your family's from an hour and a half from Seoul. Is that where you grew up? I was born in Seoul, but I grew up in a small city because mm-hmm. my dad was very particular, interesting Man, uh, he didn't like city. He wanted to go mm-hmm. small little places where we can have um, beautiful mountains and river and stuff like that. And when I was naive little kid, I hated growing up small place. <laughs> I didn't understand because both of them are from really big city. My mom and dad both. So, and I didn't understand why I have to be in this small little town. But um, he really wanted to give us what nature looks like and how the, um, you know, industrial life is different from the village life. So if I see it in retrospect, growing up in a smaller town, it's not a bad thing. Yeah, I I feel like that's a beautiful childhood. But I know the grass is always greener on the other side. You probably wished you were in a bigger city. I'm to be honest, I'm a very city person. I think Boston is um, like the limit. I cannot go small. smaller than Boston. Yes. Uh, were you not into like outdoorsy things as a kid? Did you go exploring in mountains and do they have forests? It's funny that I was forced to do that, which I'm thankful to my dad now. I was not really a sporty kid. I hated any kind of exercise back then. So the only way he can make me do the exercise is climbing mountain together with him because mm. that was his favorite thing. Every weekend, he goes climbing the mountain. Sometimes he go like eight plus hour mountain climbing and sleep in the tent. That's something that he really, really liked doing. Growing up, I didn't understand. I didn't like any of that. Even if that's beautiful nature, everything, I was too young to understand how it affects aesthetically what I'm painting in the future. So I did, as you asked me. But it was not 
my voluntary choice. It was forced. Yeah, I can identify with that. My dad forced me to play tennis with him a lot growing up, but <laughs> now I'm grateful for it because it was a good way to get exercise. I'm sure you hated it in the beginning. <laughs> I wouldn't say I hated it, but he was definitely pushing uh, me to do yeah. it. Yeah, yeah I, I can I definitely see. see landscape. And like nature is a huge part of your work that I want to talk to you about mm -hmm. too. Like I was curious how many of the species of flowers and plants and even insects and stuff, are they all real species that you've studied from uh, scientific illustrations or photographs? Or are you kind of inventing your own species of plants and animals? I started with actual species of flowers and animals, but nowadays, the last few years, I've been like mutating them and then giving them a little bit of spices. But it started from something specific. Um, when I was in SAIC, all I wanted to talk about was how do I visualize invisible pain in painting? That's a pretty ambitious thing to think about. Um, so I was born with a chronic disease. I, w I was born with a um, blood vascular malformation, which paralyze one side of my body occasionally, maybe two times a year. And um, in Chicago, finally, I tried to think about how I can express what I have specifically that not many people has. So I look at decaying, or I look at some kind of you know food getting rottening, or dead flowers, or um, like skin disease. It's like some kind of disgusting thing you see, but then it's aesthetically doing something as well. So that's what I was doing. But then in recent work that you ask, so it evolved to see the relation between death and sex, death and living, because I, I was thinking about what is the opposite of death. And my recent discovery of this French philosopher, um, <coughs> Bataille, he got the idea of the opposite of death is sex. And he also got the idea from the Freud, the Eros and Thanatos, the meeting between two opposite poles. Eros tried to you know, get together, and Thanatos tried to return back to the ground, like the death and sex. S wow. So that's something that hovering around my head so much. And what I simply did was to capture any kind of floral, fauna moment that has that aesthetic to me. For example, I'm a Korean person. In Korea, white chrysanthemum symbolized death. Mm. So it's ironic because flower itself is the fluorescence and euphoric and youth. But that particular flower in my culture is death because in the funeral, you can get to see white chrysanthemum, for example. So I'm using that. And also I realized that there was this gigantic flower in Sumatra Island originated uh, called Titanarum. It's is that the corpse flower? Corpse flower, yes. That's what it is. I've, there was, they have one at the Chicago Botanical Garden uh, that blooms. My, my wish is at least once I want to see it bloom in my own eyes. And smell it, right? Yeah. It smells like a corpse. It looks phallic, sexual. And at the same time it smells... Um, corpse because 
they need uh, flies and other animals to, you know, pollinate. spread out, pollinate instead of bees or butterfly. It's opposite. Wow. Yeah, so those are the things I use. And also fauna example, I was kind of interested in like sexual carnivalism happening in the nature all the time. Like m female praying mantis eating the male. Right. It's not always after the copulation, sometimes during the copulation. And, and also other animal kingdom, this is happening very often, every daily basis. And I Why was just fascinated. Do do you, have you ever come across that in your research? Why the praying mantis female Well, that goes back to the claim of uh, Bataille, like the moment between sex and death. For example, um, the most extreme sexual moment goes to the death, like near-death experience, for example. So mm. this is not going to be always the case, but some scientific research said that when the female praying mantis start to eat the male, they start to bite the most sensitive part of the neck. I don't know why and, it's like and how. It's pleasurable for the male that's, until that's what, it dies. That's what I'm saying. This pleasure and the maximum pleasure, the height is maybe the quality of death. Well, they call the orgasm le petit mort in French, little death. That's, that's what I was there to where I was going earlier. Yes. When you say philosopher Bataille, you mean George Bataille? George Bataille. He, didn't he write that really dirty novel, Story of the Eye? Story of the Eye, I was just going to say. I read that in undergrad. I read a few times. <laughs> it's so yeah. scatological. It is, it is, it is. But what, I never really thought of him as a philosopher. I haven't read his nonfiction. Or well, he made his own trinity, you know, in Catholicism and Christianity, Trinity is the idea, like, you know, the God, you, and and then the Holy Spirit. But he made his own spirit, so, uh, Trinity. The above human being and human being and then the state of animal. So that's like the, mm -hmm. the scatological part. And he was a crazy person. He's very problematic. Um, he He went to, you know... This prostitute places daytime and come back to his studio and start writing and that was his thing. Yeah, yeah, a lot of stuff with like very young teens and <laughs> vaguely. <laughs> I won't call him a pedophile, but I'm, there was some shocking stuff in that story that I. <laughs> that, that is a very problematic story, but I think that tells something that nobody ever heard. Yeah. I think Actually, he's writing that that book specifically, "Story of the Eye." It influenced some of the, some of the pop singers too. You know Bjork. Yeah, she wrote she, something about she that. She wrote something about it, and one of the songs from Christina Aguilera was also about that. Yeah. There's a band called Of Montreal, Canadian like indie pop band, and they they had a song where they literally mentioned like I'm reading "Story of the Eye" as one of the lyrics. I think that's how I first heard about it, honestly, because I was into that band. And there's some up. of the recent, uh, more recent uh, indie rock pop band also use some of the idea, not specifically the book, but like I'm following this uh, French indie band called La Femme, hmm. like the woman. <laughs> yeah. And also Lampratrice, 
the Empress, and the two bands are doing this psychedelic, but very dark, but pleasurous as their thematic structure, some of the albums. So yeah, that's, that's something came up to me. I actually have a reason for it. It's not just me randomly try to read Batai. Like I mentioned first about my chronic disease, but mm -hmm. second thing I confidently tr started to reveal in my artwork was my bifurcated identity. So as a gay man growing up in super conservative society where Christianity and Confucianism shake hands very nicely. And mm. I wasn't able to navigate myself. I had almost like four years of self-denial period from my time of California to my first year of Chicago. So four years, I just felt that I can't have the normal life. I, I knew I like guys at the same time. Mm, having a relationship with women will be useless as I know what I like. So I just have to depart me from any sexual life. Wow. And then when I just dropped everything altogether, the massive crazy time started to happen. And, uh, and I started to put my queer identity sipping into the work of my pieces. That's when I got interested in the Western period of Rococo and how the pleasure and over-the-top garishness and then short-lived time period that kind of dramatically matching together. And then I just put some of the aesthetics and from there and then contempt contemporizing it in my work, in a sense. That was another thing happening. And that's when I started to be more obsessed with the sex and death relationship and pleasure and death types of thing. So just to clarify, the, the death fixation, do you think that came about because of the chronic disease you were that actually with? That was the starting point, yes. Because um, when my symptom comes, the first five to 10 minutes, uh, when I'm having like scissor-like uh, symptom, and I my consciousness is still there, but my body moves uh, its own voluntarily, involuntarily, sorry. And I feel if that doesn't stop, that's the um, quality of death. Like, I mean, it's my own near-death experience every year, a few times. Is there any, like, warning sign that you yeah, know it it's going to Yeah, it gives happen? the aura. You may not notice, but on um, one of our final review in Advanced Painting Studio, um, it was not my review, it's somebody else's, but you know we normally do the whole day review. But my aura came in, so I had to hide myself to the bathroom for next 20 minutes, and I came back. Wow. And I didn't want people to see it, because I didn't want anyone to call ambulance or something, because I know what it is, and it, it will go away. Yeah. It's just like one side of your body? One side of my body and the physical appearance of me looking abnormal, that only stayed 10 minutes. I just have like um, some skin uh, moving by its own, stuff like that. Wow. Do you think 
sort of trying to um, depict that through dance was part of why you went into performance and the buto thing, the interest in that? Cause that I didn't know back then, but in retrospect, I think so, yes. So I used to call it as uh, my curse back in the time, but now I call my chronic disease as my oldest friend who comes and go. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I That's cannot funny. do anything about it. <laughs> yeah. I need to reconcile something. I'm a lot healthier now. Don't worry. <laughs> Good. I'm I'm glad for you. Yeah. Uh another scientific thing mentioned in the forward of this was the cordyceps virus. Oh, I didn't the talk thing about that it. Takes at over all. like an a living thing, like that mushroom that controls the body. Yes. Have you been following the Last of Us series on It was a video game and now it's a TV show. Have you heard of this? What was <laughs> it's, it it's called? It's a zombie outbreak show or game uh, based on the Cordyceps virus. Well, maybe you should uh, give me the link. I should watch it. It's on HBO Max. I don't know if you have that service, but it's a really good show. Or you can play the game. I didn't see that one, but I watched recently um, Fantastic Fungus, Fungi documentary. Oh, they all, mention all about cordyceps? all about the yeah they do mycelium oh, okay. and all that in Korea the cordyceps is called in very scary name what is it called it's it's called dong chung ha cho which means dong means winter chung means bug ha means summer cho means plant so in the winter it's a bug in the summer it's a plant that's freaky. That's the name of the cordyceps. That's what we call it. It's like moving plant or bug. It's so scary. <laughs> it's actually none of them. I mean, fungus is its own thing. It's mycelium. Right. <laughs> but those fungus, they really put their pollen inside of the bug and then manipulate their mind. I know. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, I thought about that because of my chronic disease. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some of the textures you do in the, some of these paintings, I'm going to find these on your website and put in the slideshow. Like when you go to these textures, it says paper pulp. That's what yeah, that yeah, is. Yeah, paper pulp. Is that your go-to 3D material? I was more actively using those um, in my MFA thesis now I use it a little minor way. I think that nowadays I went all the way back to more super flat platform. So mm. I just use it as a little bit of texture. Uh, What's fact, that texture? That's a uh, rice paper. Okay. Yeah. And what I was going to ask you before we started recording is you always work on panel, even though your work is on, is it, well, parts of it are paper, but is the overall surface paper laid down on panel, or are you actually working on a wooden surface? I used to just work on paper only. Maybe you also remember me only working with the paper. Yeah. So I mounted it before, but now I more as directly work on the panel. So I make the painting on the panel first, and then all the cutouts, 
of collage will be on top of the panel. That's one way of working. I also work paper pieces, but when I do it, I start to do, do some fun thing. I uh, put the setup of um, shadow box. So some part of the paper cut is in the front, and then some other part of the paper cut is like an inch and a half all the way back. Wow. So it's making its own theater. I just made it recently for the first time, but I feel as if I want to make a few more of those. So it's more more sculpture than painting in a sense. Yeah, that sounds like it'd be a perfect evolution of your layering, make it literally. Is there glass in between? Is that a shadow box? Is it's like a two pieces of uh, plexiglass sandwich each other. Mm. And then in, in, inside it's, instead of meat, it's a paper. Instead of meat? It's a it's burger, like, it's like sandwich. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay. I Something is saying. in the middle. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm trying to say. Well, you know me. I'm a, I'm a figurative artist, so when I see stuff like this, I get very excited. And I'm just curious, where, how do you find these figures in your mostly floral and um, or, or insect or just nature themes? Are you just seeing a shape that looks kind of like a figure and then you turn it into that or is it more planned out with the it's source? actually opposite of what you said so i'm oh, yeah. very interested in the uh the idea of holobiont like human form made out of non-human element like a flora or universe something else not blood and flesh and bone yeah uh it goes all the way back to my fascination of um renaissance artists as if Giuseppe Archimboldo. I was going to say Archimboldo. Yeah, I mean, he's a master of doing that. But I'm thinking that I'm doing my own way. And also, uh, figure, you've just mentioned about figure, it's funny. I had figurative moments in my painting here and there, although mostly my painting has been, back in the day, far more abstract. But I had some limbs or body part hovering around the pictorial plane. But now... I have more specific figure in the painting, although mm -hmm. it's still in hide and seek format. It's it has a few different reasons. I think uh, my my queerness of an honest gesture of bodies is more pronounced in the painting. At the same time, it was also coming from very practical reason. I mentioned earlier today, I without my will got to teaching of a figure drawing class and I haven't done it for a while and then the semester is coming in you know four months and oh my gosh and I started to just testing out how it was to draw body and getting the anatomical drawings and it was just experimental but I start to like it so mm -hmm. my the biggest change I have the last two years of artwork is the appearance of figure happening. And also you asked me another question, where the figure is coming from? Yeah. It's, well, I use me, and mm -hmm. also I use all the media. Mm -hmm. Like, abundance of media that we are living with every daily life in the little square, rectangle. 
Right. I have to say, this is so beautiful. I mean, they're all so beautiful, but this one just really sticks out to me right uh, the now. The missing you. That was actually, I have to thank my, one of my uh, previous students. She came into the studio as she always come once a week. And that panel I just made, well, my partner made. Um, the panel was sitting, sitting there. It was not painted at all. But the panel, the plywood has its own grain. And then she just mm. randomly mentioned that, oh, Johan, is, are you, is it painting? Or did you just do that? And I said, no, it's just wood. And then she said, can you just use it part of your painting? And then I thought about it, and that piece was born. So I wanted to make the negative space completely untouched. So I just throw it out, the silhouette, and then did not paint anything inside. So the painting was finished that way, even in the end. That's something I never done before, although I'm very much interested in all this negative, positive, spatial relationship. But that was the first time I did it recently. Yeah, I love it. I, I that that explains it. The story. That's the only one where you really see the wood grain, unless there are more somewhere. But uh, we're both maximalists in a way. You know how we we like to fill the painting with color and texture. But as I get older, I, I get more and more attracted to those moments where you where things are left empty or it's not empty, but it it's a little rest all the the color yeah i i never thought i'm gonna be the one who start to be more specific for example oh in this painting i want to have only three colors mm-hmm. and nowadays i'm doing something like that and i'm enjoying that it has the quality of um terse thirst terse oh like concise and concise short size and short and just you see the form and shape not overly occupied by the color sometimes. Don't get me wrong, I'm still color addict. Actually, I wrote a question now, and I wanted to ask if different color palettes or even just specific colors mean different things for you. Like I don't have a set of formula, but I do think, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of uh, analyzing or thinking about my contents, um, I do like the color of east and west when they were using very garish colors. So I like Rococo color schemes. I love all the color of uh, French Macron, Mm. that tinted pink and blue and gold. And I also love, there was one period in Korea, it's a Goryeo dynasty, there was more liberal society and only one Korean dynasty which was doing international trade what what years was this was uh, it was i i cannot give you exact time but kind of 1000 to 1500 that was the period and then after that they became more very close the, the next kingdom was very close joseon wow. dynasty yeah before we became a contemporary korea yeah does does your work have a strong lineage to korean art from like hundreds of years ago what what would the it's common so f- funny i like i like the question i when i came to us and the years of time i never thought about 
me uh, depicting anything Korean. The more I abandon it, the more I neglect it, I realize that in the end of the day, that's the things I know the most. The smell of the mountain I claim with my dad and the specific color structure of the temple I saw every month in the middle of mountain and how the river color looks like different from Chicago or Boston. And then green in the summertime in US is very different from Korea. So I slowly went back and back to the Korea in terms of getting some of the you know, nostalgic memories and specific sensibility I remember. But I don't think I'm intensely overly using Korean aesthetic because Korean artists tell me you're not Korean artist. You're you're very Western art. Your work is very fusion. And I I agree that I did not learn um Korean or um Asian ink drawing technique specifically. I didn't have that kind of lineage of school. I don't. My schooling is all Western. Although my experience is still a lot in Korea because my birth year to my age of 19, I lived in Korea. Yeah, and I would argue that even just using your choice of materials, the liquid, the, the watercolor, the ink, and the Yupo paper, or just these, and rice paper as a collage material, all that's Korean or at least Asian. But to answer your question more specifically, I did not intentionally start to use that. It just happened. Right. And I started learning from my own work, oh, I'm doing this thing, so I can do things more intentional too. So it just developed that way. Yeah. When you said you first got to California and you were taking community college classes, you said you were doing very traditional kind of still life, right? Western traditional still life, yes. But the some of the elements of your work now still like a floral painting is classified as still life in the Western Renaissance oil painting tradition. Yeah, uh, I don't think it it was all abandoned from me. I think I'm still right. embracing it. Yeah, some of those, uh, I guess Dutch or Northern you mean European the Flemish painting. Yeah, do you know Rachel Roish or I think her name I is? I think She's I saw that painting she's one of my favorite flower painters from in in rick's museum in in amsterdam i'm sure there I are guess. some yeah but the way you paint flowers like she's one of the other the few artists i can think of who render flowers with that crispness and yours are so crisp because partially because you're cutting them out but yes. some of your shapes the edges are so sharp and and like right. high resolution <laughs> the um but wait, before, I wanted to move on to, to some questions about shape and stuff, but did you say all you all of your thoughts on color? Like, for example, like what does a color palette like this, when you go for a bright orange background, there's not, I guess there's a f quite a, a few. few of those, but is that immediately like a warm, happier feeling or compared to a, a purple or a, red painting like these are very deep and mm -hmm. um, blood like <laughs> well to be honest I don't have a, my background color choice in the beginning I have a three two three weeks of just paper cutting 
and right. also maybe sometimes cut paper as its own translucent or opaque white color, or I colored it first and cut the paper. So a lot of cut papers are just piling up in my studio. And then once I have idea, let's say I need four by six painting, and mm -hmm. then I put them on the panel and just move around, playing around. And then depending on what color I have already on the cutout, and that just determine what can be the ground color. Okay. So it's very intuitive in that way. You're very much seeing so. the colors and moving around. So it's, a, it's more like reactionary. So at the time me. you're uh, gluing down the cut pieces, the background is still It's already uncolored. there. Oh. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't glue it. I, for example, the one you're just um, looking at right now, the mm -hmm. blue thing was already done. I see. And then I'm, I'm playing with the red-white thing. Uh, is it good here or not? Should I put more white things in the top? Yeah, that choice happens after. And then you add more, like the if dark blue. If it's blue not on the top. I, I want, I need to do more. Yes. For example, that bottom part of the painting was not that dark blue, dark blue, but I felt that I needed to make it more opaque and darker. And Is I this flower thing also like a hand, an arm? It kind of looks like there are two figure there. Profile. Oh, right now I see the faces. They're and so also hidden. the flower itself is two figures too. The one in the middle. Oh my gosh. They're making out. I see it now. Two, I, two guys. I totally <laughs> see that's that. that's why I respect Artimboldo and all the people who's doing human without using human element. Wow, I just saw a big flower. I mean, I could see the figure clearly when it's sort That's of distinct. That's more obvious. That's more very obvious. obvious. Yeah. I guess I'm more obvious <laughs> when I. Put I don't my know figures. about you, but for me, I want the people to look at the work as long as they can. You know how many seconds people look at the artwork in the museum? Like five. I wish it's five. Less than that. Point five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Unless they are informed that, oh, this is Mona Lisa, this is Nikkei. Other than that, they just walk. Oh, okay, keep going, moving. I'm talking about, I shouldn't say this, but I have to say, the general public who's not really in-depth uh, at you know, investing in art. Definitely. Yeah. I'm sorry if I sound like elitist. Maybe I am. <laughs> no, I... I feel like that's pretty common knowledge that most museum visitors, like you said, they're just walking through the museum. I think I, I have faith that even the, the most lay person who doesn't know much about art, if they see something that really grabs their attention, they'll spend a little longer with it. But that might be one thing out of a hundred pieces that they see. Yeah, I mean, if you can provide that one painting, I think your life is successful as a painter. Yeah, that's that's all we can hope for. Right. Giving someone a, a longer experience. The only thing is you cannot predict. <laughs> I like this one. Ah. Very that provocative one. title. <laughs> yes. I, I think I see something in there, but I don't know if I'm seeing the right thing. I think you do. 
I'm not going to give you an answer. <laughs> yeah, let's leave it to the imagination. It's mumbling specificity. Mumbling specificity. I stole that word from my professor Roger Tibet from SIC. I'm, no, I'm sorry, mass art. <laughs> I like that. That kind of feels like how I live my life. I mumble, and I, but I try to be specific as I'm mumbling. One of the critics, he said that, and I just had no idea what that meant. <laughs> Do you still not know? I feel like I know I think, what I think I'm having, I'm getting the nuance now. Yeah, I think it's a compliment. Mumble isn't bad. No, it's not. There's a whole genre of filmmaking called mumblecore, and mumble rap is a genre of rap music. <laughs> that guy gave a lot of word for me. On one, of, one of the other vocabulary I remember, which I overuse nowadays, I mentioned the other day in our visit to Vincent van Gogh, mm -hmm. surreptitiously. Ah, that's a good word. <laughs> yeah. You you gave me a adjective about how I talk that day. You said I I talk like a snake or something. Snakey talk, yeah. Snakey talk. <laughs> Sometimes your flowers. When here's a question I wanted to ask about the negative versus positive shape in something as complex as a flower. Like you're you're using that confusion between negative and positive to hide your hidden figures in a way. But does it ever get confusing to you? what part you cut out, like what value you would cut out of a face or a flower, and like lights and darks, I mean, value. Most of the times I'm confused, but I think that's why I do this way. I want to figure out, am I really cutting the negative? Am I really cutting the positive? And is it really about the figure or it's about the silhouette of the figure actually making the beautiful ground, if that's more important? Right. That's when I'm a little more specific about the space of void, which I'm recently more interested, which came from a lot of Chinese, Korean, Japanese artistic tradition. Mm -hmm. Last figure, more about the infinite ground. I think in Western painting, the painting had to be filled with you know mountain, people, something. Even in the portrait painting, it's like you have the whole torso. But in... Like, for example, Korean uh, painting of the king, they don't do only the um, torso. They do the whole body sitting with the chair and the background. So they never have a portrait, which is the torso. So the things around the face, things around the figure is as important or more important than the figure itself. Definitely. Yeah. That's, I think, more specifically Asian uh, aesthetic philosophy I'm borrowing from my own culture nowadays. Yeah. I've never heard that term, the infinite ground. Can you expand on that? What is that? That infinite ground, I, I, just, I just put it out now. I, I think <laughs> I never used the word before, but the space of void, I read more in-depthly from, you know, the Whitechapel um, series of books, MIT Press, they have appropriation, they have this and that. Yeah. But there was one book, um, which I'm highly recommending for any artist or any public. It's called Sublime, name of the book. Okay. And then the one chapter was written by a Korean scholar who's a uh, Korean contemporary museum curator or somebody. But he wrote something about space of void. And there's an active void and passive void. You know, when we say the word background, that's mostly 
passive void. All the space you see from a typical portrait painting, whatever outside of the face. That's what we normally call background. Right. But when the background started to activating its own voluntary forces, I think that becomes active void. And that's mm -hmm. what I mean by infinite ground. Yeah, that's such an interesting idea because background does imply that it's kind of unimportant. It's it's in the background. Even just the, the word has a connotation. I hate the word. <laughs> Me too. I, I always feel silly bringing it up in a critique or something like it it sounds so less less important than the figure let but it's me not. just make example in your room right here perfectly that figure with the blue hair mm -hmm. all the black space i see it as a background passive void right. but that painting in the black and the achromatic monochromatic painting all the ground color section the white to the gray to the black i see that as a active ground yeah that's brooks painting actually oh um and i i love the background in it it's it's yeah got got a nice gradient there's a lot happening and mm -hmm. i can tell in your work you you choose to make the back i don't even know what other <laughs> word to use you it. can use background the, it's fine the background's so active and it background what, what's a better word we can use infinite Void. <laughs> infinite void infinite ground is that what you said before infinite yeah ground. yeah I, I i i'm so surprised that's a beautiful that word. i don't think i ever said that in any artist talk i just made it up today <laughs> it it makes it sound much more significant than just oh it's whatever space was left in the canvas yeah have you ever tried Actually, I remember this in undergrad. You were doing some things that weren't even on a panel, just like cut shapes. Yes, I did make my entire uh, midterm critique just for that piece. It was three parts because it was too big. I had to pin it up, um, I think, seven feet wide and mm -hmm. four feet height. Yes, I did that before. It was not no panel or nothing just i put it on the white wall yes that's right um but it seems like in recent years you've been sticking with the panel yeah <laughs> is there i i got back to the rectangle <laughs> i think well it makes sense those are the kind of the commodity of the art world <laughs> they're <laughs> and i mean that in the best possible way they, they're easily transported and one occasion last year, actually, I had a three-person show with two other Korean friends who's also faculty at the Mass Art. One was sculptor and me and one video person. But I had the freedom of making site-specific installation. And I used the corner to make the cut paper itself to make its own rectangle. Cool. So it's a little different from that rectangle of the painting format. But again, I didn't get back to what you remember as entire free-formed work, no. That's something kind of like anti-commercial anti about that kind of stuff, <laughs> which I think it's there's something powerful in engaging with the history of the rectangle and 
accepting that as sort of a starting well, I mean, place. to be honest, you and I know it can be easily hang in somebody's house. Yeah. That's the, that's the functionality of it. Although every painting has no function and there's no practical right. function. There are different types of function. <laughs> and just paper on its own, loose is not as... Um, it's more fragile. It has its own beauty because it's temporality, I think. That's yeah. what it makes it beautiful because it dies out. It many, many occasions, those kind of site-specific installations only live for that moment. Right. I had a big argument with uh, my performance friend one point that she said only it matters when you come to that site when that performance is happening. And so if you watch the DVD or TV version, it's Doesn't never going to be the same. But then we had an argument about it for hours of time back then. Did you feel the documentation is also... I, I, I was the one who argued that that's okay. And she said, no, it, should, it shouldn't be the same. I mean, think <laughs> of some of the most famous works of performance are they're still taught in art history today because there's documentation like you can show people and and yeah that, that was my argument point but i still see the valid point like you being in there interacting with the musician or performer that's a very different live experience yes i can give it that yeah but like we are inevitably having to rely on the document to be able to see something amazing happen in the past because it cannot repeat. Right. I mean, it's, it's something about uh, fatal nature of human being. And that also makes us beautiful. I think the reason why we like living flower instead of artificial flower is because we know die. the fact that they die. Yeah. Um, I have a few more topics I want to get to, but I'm going to take a little bathroom break. I'll be right back. Do you want any more coffee or anything? Coffee is always good, yeah. Do you think we're doing good? Yeah, it's great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just want to make sure. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. This is perfect. Coffee and talking about art, what better things can be. Talking about art and yeah, yeah I I I really miss this environment. That's why I think my advanced painting time was the happiest moment in entire art school period. Back in session. <laughs> um, part two. Who who were your advisors in that advanced painting? Did we have the same section? I don't know. I'm going to say, and then you may know if it's the same or not. I had Jose Larma, Molly Jackman, and the third person, Barbara Rossi. Could we mix and match from the two sections? Because I had two of the three. I don't think Jose was my advisor, but I had Molly and Barbara. Bar I That I remember, and then Michiko was not my section in the first semester, for sure. But maybe... Oh, she was never my session, no. Michiko was one of Terry my... Terry Meyer was not my session. Adam, okay. Scott, Adam Scott was my session, sorry. Me the too, yeah. First semester. Adam Scott, Molly, 
And who was the third? Barbara. And Barbara. Yeah, that was the first. Okay, we had yeah. the same. Yeah, we section. got the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Good. Times. Yeah, we had the six faculty, right? Well, the three of them are in this section. Three of them, the other section. Yeah, and then during the midterm crits, they would kind of all, all get of them some feedback in, from both. Same as a final crit. Yeah. Yes. Oh my God! One point, uh, Terry Meyer just killed me. Really? For that painting you mentioned earlier, that preformed one. What did, do you remember? What he said? Exactly, I remember. Maybe <laughs> he doesn't remember. You have a very good memory, I noticed. He said, <laughs> um, are we in the fashion show? Am I just witnessing wedding dress? This is the most self-indulgent works I've ever seen. He said that? Yeah. <laughs> what? About I that kind of piece? understand what he said. That because basically all of the scale that I'm cutting and the color structure is all same. It's not like larger and smaller. It's all similar scaled ones making it amplifying version. So what he meant when I decode his message in my own, <laughs> there's no focal point, there's no hierarchy in this piece. It's just decorative for the sake of nothingness. I think that's what he meant. But he didn't clarify it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Where'd the fashion show comment come from? They weren't like garments. They were on the wall. How is that fashion? I don't know. I'm not blaming him. He was a good critique. It just yeah. At the time, I was very, <laughs> I was breaking down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think we all have those moments, and they they make you stronger once you get over the sting of the criticism. You process it over right. the next few months or years, and then. Um, that's why we needed, you know, to go to the bar and having a drink and crying session, <laughs> not at yes. the critique after. <laughs> After. Yeah. And I I don't know if you remember my last critique. I had the piece which is not dried yet, so I had to put it on the ground. Did you get criticized for that too? No, that was the weird time. Um that, that became my um BFA thesis piece. Mm. Um he didn't say a word at all. And then after we finished the critique, on the way out from the Bil uh, building and he just tapped my shoulder I was scared I just looked at him say he said I think now you understood what I said before <laughs> duh <laughs> I think I remember that piece on the floor was it like blue and green it was like white ground and then blue green and red yes what were you using as a material then inks or uh, not only the acrylic but also um acrylic ink and watercolor and one other thing I actively used back then was um, um, clear gesso that was one thing I was obsessed oh, yeah, with yeah to get that like thick but see through thick milky creamy translucent right. something yeah seminal <laughs> yeah yeah it looks like that yes why not <laughs> yeah it's thematically appropriate in some ways. Yeah, in a way, yeah. If I look back, I didn't think about it back then, but now it it was exactly what it was. The the piece you posted on Instagram recently that was in Chicago and you were picking up that looks like a face in profile. Is that supposed to be? I wanted monstrous uh, ascending monster figure. Yeah, in a sense, I wanted yeah. it to be figure, but 
but I was thinking more about the organs, like all these body organs laying out together, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Because I, if you remember my past work, it was all about making blobs. Uh, right, yeah. Not making a little pond, overlaying together. But with a little bit of like hints of figure. Mm-hmm. Not specific figure, but hints of figure. Yeah, that's kind of what I was doing. Is your goal as an artist creating beauty? Or is it, well, death and sex, death is not necessarily seen as beautiful a lot of the time. It's that decay. I mean, before I answer the question, I have to clarify, which I cannot clarify even now, it's difficult, the difference between aesthetics and beauty. I think that's two different words. Please explain the difference, because, well, I agree with you, but aesthetics how do you is see it? more personal and mm. more wide range of visual code. And I think beauty is what's more socially, commonly acceptable word. Some part of aesthetics overly, generally accepted. Okay. I don't know if it's even explaining anything. But I, I have to confess that... Um, even though my content material is not what people think as a beauty, but my choice of color and form within the picture plane, I still want to have a, a dew drop of beauty. If I don't have that, I don't think that's my painting. I think you so, have which a means bit more that than a dew drop. I mean, okay. you're you're dripping in beauty. That's okay, all right. <laughs> I, I I'm saying <laughs> very less than <laughs> what I'm actually doing. Um, okay, so one one thing is clear. I I don't think I am abject painter. Like the ugliness and that, that that's what you mean by abject. You're mm. not that. I'm not that. I'm not showing like a blood shattering in my painting. Yes. No. Even if it's blood, I'm making it like rainbow blood. (laughs) (laughs) Make it fabulous. Yeah. I used to classify my aesthetic uh, level, like the third level, fabulous, second level, marvelous. I remember this. And the first level, because I'm French freak, after I (laughs) went to the trip to Paris, you know, Louvre Museum. Magnifique? No, the Louvre. (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> you used to say that to I, me I still do it. I force my family to do it. <laughs> These paintings are so Louvre. I, I know I'm so uh, but <laughs> intriguingly pathetic, but I still love my wording. <laughs> What's Lazuri levitation mean? Lazuri is a, a color. It's a very specific blue color. Oh. And levitation, you know what levitation is. Yeah. But that painting... Specifically, I target to um, Korean traditional white porcelain uh, ceramic with a blue painting illustration, that types of aesthetic. I wanted to kind of have that touch. Mm. The levitation also reminds me of some El Greco ascension of Mary into the heavens. and the, There's a lot of paintings of Mary floating above the you world. You know what's funny? 
I'm no I'm no longer a religious person, but mm-hmm. then I think because I've been Roman Catholic household and also believer for a really, really long time. It's the whole t- idea of a Christianity or Trinity and all this, you know, perfection of uh, symmetry, the things I saw from the church, that's still hovering around my brain all the time. And then I think this is part of the unconscious uh, religious things I saw in the painting or church coming out. And then the right next painting to Luxury Levitation is um, Slippery Chamber. And mm-hmm. that chamber is also, I'm thinking of a little little altar chamber in the big cathedrals oh, normally. Yeah. I love that shape, the geometric. Yeah, that's one of the few things very geometric in this uh, series of work that you're seeing. And In Search of Floral Bodies was the name of your show at Fitchburg, right? Yes, yes. I I named it after, you know, the French uh, Proust writing, In Search of Lost Time. Lost Time. time. I, that, that's where I was going for. Ah. Yeah. Nice. Uh, I have a friend from grad school who is lives in Fitchburg, Massachusetts now. It's like an hour outside Boston. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I know where it is. He, he works at, uh, of course, you, you showed there. Uh, he works at the De Cordova Museum. Do you know where oh, that is? Oh, that's beautiful place, the museum and park. The park has a lot of nice um, sculptures, and inside they have a, a lot of good um, contemporary artists showing. Yeah. yeah. I went there a few times. Uh, mainly sculpture, right? It's a sculpture. But inside of the museum, you can still have. They still have a painting show, installation show, some other things. Okay. Is he? Yeah, is, never, is your friend a sculptor? He well, we were in MFA painting department together, but he does a lot of sculpture. Well, SIC painting doesn't really mean the traditional painting. Right. That's that's kind of a common uh a lot of painted knowledge. sculpture <laughs> and sometimes people are even doing videos and stuff like the ta you mentioned the other day travis he was showing video i think yeah, in his yeah, grad yeah, yeah, studio yeah but i think i was a little confused although i learned a lot in sic that we almost we were for forbidden to say the word beauty like in the critique, there's no any faculty ever mentioned beauty. And mm. also in my teaching, I also don't use the word beauty that much too. But I think saying something beautiful is okay if you have your valid reason. I think it's forbidden only because it's so subjective sometimes. Definitely, but... When you said aesthetics as being personal and beauty is a cultural and also a subjective thing, aesthetics could be like abject aesthetics. It could be like the aesthetics of something vulgar and creepy. That's why I said abject. I mean, aesthetic has a wider range of things right. compared to beauty. But how else would you describe something that's pleasing to the eye and and sensual with color like i i don't know of another word besides beauty and its synonyms i think nowadays like, some of the f- people say the word um juicy or yummy the painting's <laughs> so yummy and that's okay but beauty's I not i don't know 
I don't. Yeah, that that's gonna be a further conversation. But well, uh, as seeing as we're both involved in the I higher think visually education, pleasing is fine. Yeah. Oh, okay, it has clinical. its own problem too. But isn't isn't making art creating problem intentionally? You could, yeah, I think so. Well, I mean, I don't think the art's the problem, but the I mean, problem in a positive sense. Like, once you put your mark on the painting, I mean, ground, it was already peaceful canvas. It was void, beautiful white, but then you put the mark. That's a problem already there. And then you're fixed, we're just fixing it and then make another problem fixing <laughs> until the painting's over. That's the battleground. I don't know. That's how I feel it. You know, I never thought of it like that, but I, I, I like that metaphor that the brushstrokes are creating problems that a lot of artists are okay with letting the problem be very unsolved, like some big slashes of paint, and then that's, that's the work they're putting out there. I think Albert Owen does it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> like some parts completely underpainting and done. Yeah, he's, there's many that are yeah. kind of like that. Yeah. They do create problems, like a problematic situation for the viewer, like understanding why this is art or why why this is this valuable. <laughs> and a lot of times it's just down to their reputation and yeah. what they've done before. I think it's even fascinating for me to see your trajectory. Um, 11, 12 years ago, I saw your work a lot more specifically earthen local tone with a fictional narrative and that your work is actually illustrating a specific story at the time. Yeah. But now I think the way you loosen up for your painting and then I think part of the story is lost, which makes it even more interesting because it's not telling me how I'm supposed to feel. It tells me certain part of the story, but then I have to fill up the blank. Good. That's what I hope you would do. Like I, I, I realized that when I had those very specific narratives that they were shutting down a lot of that interpretation. And they were getting boring for me to make, too. So I started leaving it a lot more open. But you had to do this. I think that was necessary. Definitely, yeah. Just like your still lifes in community college were necessary, like yeah. and whatever work you made when you first got to SCIC before you reached your more mature style, like it's all necessary. We wouldn't be who we are without those exercises or those technical explorations. Right. I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about your thoughts on Korean pop culture. Oh, I was thinking that's that may be coming. <laughs> like Korean pop culture. You were until you were nineteen. You lived there. Were you bringing? Well, and like K-pop it, it was exploded. A, it was very fascinating and shocking to me. I'm I'm still in shock because I'm happened to be witnessing a first generation of K-pop, which was mid nineties. Yeah, I am the one who grew up with those people. So, who some, are some of, of the biggest uh, names from that period at the time? Yeah, HOT High Five of Teenager, and SES. There's a two uh, SES three word that's standing for three 
uh, female singer's name. Okay. Something like they were like two s- most popular ones, and there's a second league and third league <laughs> of the people. But that literally I, leagues. Like I mean, I'm talking about the popularity. Okay. Right. Like now they you know, have fight, fight between uh, Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera types of thing. Right. But um. So, some some big company CEO went to U.S. actually on 1994-5. Um, they saw things like Backstreet Boys, New Kids on the Block, TLC, Destiny's Child. I mean, Destiny's Child was not there yet, I guess. And then benchmarked the idea to Korea and then started. But at the time, it was not this overly crazy. It was just a two, three label. And then we, we had it our own just pop scene, you know, one person singer stuff. But then it's growing mega popular. And then in 2006 or seven, okay, the time I came to US, I start to hear about Korean K-pop band from American person or Korean person grow up in America for the first time. Mm-hmm. So that was I think the the moment they started to blow up. And now I think it is really monstrous. And you told me what's my thought on it. Um I think Korean producers um did very strategic things. First of all, it's arguable but they they get into training in their age of as young as thirteen. Yeah, and that they're having very boot camp training. I know in U.S. it's gonna be like child abuse, but in Korea the law you can find a way to, you know, snaking out. I mean the law is more strong now, so it's, you cannot just force the kids to train ten hours a day. No, but it has been the case. Yeah, and then multiple producers working with them, and they have to learn everything: the rapping and dancing and vocality and everything. And then they always have certain part, main vocal, sub-vocal, rapper, main mm-hmm. dancer. So at least they need minimum two, three people maximum. They, The biggest group I've seen is almost 11 members, 12 members. Right. So I think it's manufact- manufactured, but at the same time, they really want to Poliate the highest quality, so some good ones actually have a good vocal too, and then some good band. I mean, health band, healthy band. Eventually, a few years later, some of the kids start to write their own music and stuff like that. Those but are the, healthy bands because they are actually. I mean, like true what, what I mean by healthy is uh, not abused and disappeared, oh. discarded, like right. band. There's too many of them and very little survivor. For example, the the biggest one you know is BTS. And yeah. they were not that big and they became like miraculously big now. And then I had a talk with my partner about this a lot and I asked him, he's not Korean, and he listened to K-pop music some segment. Why do you think K-pop is so internationally successful and he was thinking uh, Korean producers pinpoint some of the biggest stars of U.S. and then benchmark it, contemporizing it, like Jack Michael Jackson, Madonna's uh, 
what they did in dance and what they did in melodic rhythm and then make it contemporizing it and then give it to the young teenagers. And then that worked internationally because something they've heard before but different, some kind of movement they saw before but different. Right. Yeah. They're, they're very good at picking all the right ingredients. And they spend so much effort and money for each and every nice music videos, too. Yeah. But why did you ask me that question? Only because I'm a Korean person. <laughs> yeah, and I've, I've followed some of the recent bands. Like, I like some songs by Twice. Do you know that band? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Twice. Uh, and I listen to their song, too. <laughs> Have you heard of a more like uh, rock? They play their own instruments. Band called Day Six. Oh, Day Six, I heard about them. They're pretty good too. They seem like a band that the the members genuinely have songwriting talent, and they're all kind of more independent. It seems like some of them are branching out into solo projects. Hmm. But you you said it was monstrous. Are you saying mainly just the the atmosphere of forcing young people to work so hard on music? Is but the, but also the kids want to be the star. Right. That's another yeah. thing. Like Blackpink, I saw a documentary about them. Uh, Blackpink is, I think, by now, 2023, the biggest female idol band in the, on the planet, I guess. Yeah. Like, it used to be Spice Girls in our time. They're, most of their songs are in Korean, right? But they'll often have a chorus that is in English <laughs> to for recognizable or like a single word. That even in nine, even in nineties when I grew up, some regular Korean pop they they didn't even use the word K-pop before. We used the word Kayo, which means pop in Korea. So okay. so those people also put some English in the lyrics, and. Oh gosh! Earlier today, I mentioned that we are living in post-colonial time. Korean yeah. people in nineties, even now, they think something with English sounds cooler, without having any connotation. Never been to U.S. Don't even interact with any American person, but still, something English, something Western, sometimes is considered to be better without having any uh, specific logical reason. Well, isn't it just smart marketing to get a song that people around the world are listening to have an English Well, now title? it is not, now it is becoming intentional. Yes, yes, yeah. but it wasn't. But yes, because you're asking me why why there's English there, here and well, there. I I assumed it was just for ease of English speakers to recognize the songs and be able to like at least sing along one word <laughs> every song. But, but Korean uh, uh, pop idols had a really hard time to charting good in U.S. until something unexpected happened. Psy, Gangnam Style. So that, that was nobody the star? expected, and he didn't even make the song for U.S. or Western market. He was right. doing his thing, and the song Gangnam Style was not just one hit wonder. In Korean standpoint, it was his already sixth studio album. He'd been the, in the game for a long time. But was he already a very big artist in Korea before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he got a number of number one songs already in the chart. Yeah. But then in Western world, it's one hit wonder thing. Is he considered a rapper in Korea? Because he doesn't really. He sing. considered himself rapper, but he actually he didn't. He he's not like the idol group that you're mentioning about. He did it himself. 
he wrote his song. He also writes song for other artists. Actually, he made beautiful ballad song. But the thing is that he didn't sing the song. He gave it to the other one who can do that <laughs> better. Okay. So he's versatile person, but his persona is the rapper person. And also, Korean critic always say him as like, you know, B level star or style, like not A level, B level. I don't know what well, that even means. Like goofy, silly, not like sure. perfectly polished because of his, his look. Yeah. yeah, but then he always in an interview like he's very upset that why reporters and art critics always put me in that category. For me, I'm a, a level that I think I am. And anyway, it's really interesting. Um, yeah, he kind of changed the game. He gave Korean singers the potential that oh, we can also do <laughs> number one in like Billboard chart or something like that, and then the companies try to be more specific, more analytical, more marketing, mm -hmm. and I think that's what became more successful. What year was Gangnam Style? Like um, it was when I was Boston, uh, two thousand. It was 13, you were already 12? in Boston yeah. when that happened? I thought it was 13. a little older than that. 13, four, thir 12, 13. Wow. Yeah. And even he got shocked. He just did it for Korean public, and then his charting was doing good. But then YouTube just make it mega hit. And then he did say in his interview that uh, Scooter Brothers or something, which represents Justin Bieber, like the label called him. Mm -hmm. And he's like, haha, it's a spam prank, prank call. It's not happening. But really, they tried to represent him. That's how he did have a TV show in United States and performed in uh, some of the shows. And even he very abruptly did a collaboration with Madonna in the middle of her concert. When you saw that? No, or no, no, I saw no. it in, I saw in media. Okay. Yeah. So she was headed to heading to US from Europe, like New York concert. And then Sai was happened to be there and Madonna called Sai, Can you appear in the middle of my concert? Yeah. Great. I, I remember that time. <laughs> yeah, was that exciting. was the moment. But not the way that Korean K pop was doing. It was he he just did his thing but it just became mega thing. Mm -hmm. Now it seems like other aspects of Korean media are, are becoming really internationally popular, like movies and shows. Movies, movie has been popular um, in the end of 90s, early 2000. In Korea, we call it as a Korean film renaissance. Mm -hmm. That's when the star directors started to do their first movies. Like, you know Bong Joon-ho, who made Parasite? Yes. And also uh, the other one, I've, uh, what's his name? But the one who made uh, Old Boy. Yeah. Uh, who just made another name. movie recently, Decision to Leave. Okay, I haven't seen or that Or did you watch Handmaiden? Handmaiden, no. The, uh, it's a lesbian, queer type. Anyway, those, are, those uh, directors started to make movies and get international attention a little bit are, uh, are either of them the one who made the train to busan series the 
Frank Wilson, I know the I know the movie, but not, yeah, I know not the, the same director. Don't know, as not the did. same director. Uh, the the Parasite director was he's really good. I I, I good watched movie. I think most of his film so far, except for one. I I think I watched everything. What's another one he had before Parasite? Okja, about the pig. Oh, I don't think I. And he also had a uh, movie called uh, called uh, Memory of Murder Hmm. and Mother. And and his first movie is The Host. I saw that. That, That's his first uh, mega hit movie in Korea. It was not that much big, but still, it was internationally also successful. Like the big sea monster. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the year I, I watched a movie in Korea and I left Korea. <laughs> in the in the theater. That was his first movie. No, uh, not first movie. First commercial movie. Okay. So he's like very clever. He knows how to make art and commercial converge together. Yeah, and the the command over special effects and CG, it's all very impressive. Like cinematography, those. Parasite, I thought, was a great-looking movie. And uh, he always have certain types of uh, social political commentary. Yeah. Like you, you, s- you remember that the, you know, toxic element released to the river. It's experimental residue from U.S. Army, mm. something like that. That is kind of the commentary he does. I I don't know much about the colonial history of Korea. Because because your your mother is from the country who's never colonized. I mean, thank thank Thailand uh, is the only country in Asia which is never colonized. Wow, I never. Your na- I mean, Thailand that. neighbors are all colonized. Yeah, the Indochina French, was Vietnam France, India was England. Who? Where was Korea? Who was in Korea? Japan. Okay, well, that's not Western. Colonial. What they said that they were not Asian at that time. Japan. They update the, at that time imperialism time. They said we are higher than Asian. We're not Asian. Wow. So uh, <laughs> what they did was kind of stupid but interesting. They abandoned the lunar calendar. That's the first thing they did. The lunar calendar. They like we we no longer believe this. So the new generation Japanese kids, they don't know lunar calendar. So to this day, Japan doesn't use lunar calendar? They don't. What do they use? Well, our calendar. Oh, okay. I mean, in in, in Korea, China, we still use a Western calendar. We do. But we also use the lunar calendar, too. Not not as significantly, but still, we have it. Okay, so, but Japan kind of started that trend of using the gregorian calendar i <laughs> something i don't know that much about but that's where the new year BCAD. is that yeah that's BCEADE. Uh, i like that better <laughs> instead yeah. of using christ <laughs> before right. common era <laughs> yeah and after common era <laughs> or just uh ce and bce oh, common yeah. era and before common oh, yeah, era yeah 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 i know in thailand they have their own calendar I don't know. It might be lunar for the months of the year, but they have a year system that's totally different from ours. They're like you know, totally I mean, other most number. of the food you see from Japan, I- except for anything with fish, like sushi, sashimi, it's very Japanese. But like tempura, mm-hmm. it's actually their interpretation of Portuguese food. 
Portuguese? Yeah, Portuguese was the one who did deep fry first. Oh, and then temporized Japanese pronunciation for that food. Wow. And then also katsu. Mm-hmm. It's a cutlet. Oh, I can hear the similarity there. And then curry of Japanese curry coming from the British coming, British curry coming from the India. Yeah. Yeah. Is how did you end up having a Roman Catholic upbringing in Korea? My grandfather, I mentioned earlier, the 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 painter, painting teacher. Uh, his his family is third generation of Catholic. Mm-hmm. I'm actually from very in-depth religious family. And interestingly enough, his wife, my grandmother, she was not Catholic. She was Anglican. And then she was also from very in-depth Anglican family. Her brother, I think, was. Not now anymore, but her brother was Korean Anglican Archbishop. So I'm from this kind of family. Wow. And also my dad, um, he's, he wanted to be a priest at one point, and then I wouldn't be here. Because <laughs> he'd be celibate if you're in, a priest? Catholic priests cannot. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. We both so, have yeah. Christian background. My mother was not, my mother's family was not Catholic. Their family were more Buddhist. Mm. But uh, she was baptized at a certain point, but it was just for the ceremony. And she was not that solid Catholic. But after she married to my, my dad, and then it became really strong. That's how I grew up as a Catholic family. I see. I I had to go to Sunday mass every week and yeah. And then before we eat we had to, you know, do the prayer and yeah, that that, that was the routine that I had I did it growing up. Wow. I was altar boy for three years. And I, my dad said that was the most amazing, glorious thing you can do as an 11-year-old boy. So, <laughs> okay, I'm going to make you pride, proud. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how I come from a very religious family in a way. Would you see a lot of the Christian and Catholic art from Europe in, in Korean church? Or would it be its own? Would there be Korean art based on... Christ and you mean you mean how it looks like in Korea Catholic Church inside? Yeah, would there be paintings similar to like Titian? It's a half and half because in the beginning they only had the Titian looking, you know, the stained glass everything. Yeah. But the last uh, twenty years, I saw some of the um, movement happen that which I'm interested. Um, they still do the Virgin Mary and Child everything, but then they're wearing Korean traditional dress. Mm-hmm. Or like making look like a Brancusi sculpture, very modern or simplified. So some of the other design is still happening. Yeah. Gotcha. So it's it's no longer only the Titian looking, yeah, like Sistine Chapel. But so still, still many church is decorated that way. I, I knew there was a lot of Christianity in South Korea, but I did not know it was specifically Roman Catholic or that there was no, even no, no, Catholics no, no. at all. Uh, there's, uh, okay, so here's the fact. We have 30% of Christianity. 
10% Catholic, 20% Protestant. Okay. So actually, in terms of the number, in terms of the number, there are more Protestant. But it sounds smaller because there are so many sectors, Baptist, Methodist, this, this, and that. Yeah. But they're all kind of Protestant. Yeah. Uh, and the, the way Protestant came to Korea is a little different from Catholic. Protestant came as like, you know, missionary after Korean War and stuff like that, even during that, b- even before. But Catholic came to Korea in very unusual way. How? The Joseon dynasty before Korea, before Japanese colonization, um, the scholars, the Korean scholars wanted to learn something new because we are only learning Chinese Qing dynasty and we have to learn something else too. So some mm-hmm. of the liberal thinkers, they try to learn like Western science or some other things. And Catholicism was one, other, one of the things they, they discovered. Oh, this is called Bible. And, <laughs> and then several people, scholars, they went to China to get themselves baptized. And that was the beginning of Catholic in Korea. They went to China to become baptized. Because China already, China already had Catholic church and uh, priests. Wow. Yeah. It's so it's a little different from how, you know, Latin America became Catholic. It's, it's different. Which was very colonial. It's very bloody colonial. <laughs> yeah. So fascinating. I think we should probably wrap it up. We're at over two hours. Wow, <laughs> and I'm going to have to edit, wow. this, edit this down a little bit uh, before I post it. But is there anything else you wanted to mention or promote or say? Like, how, how can people find your work? We can put links in the, the video. Uh, you can find me from my website, yoanhan.com or chaseyonggallery.com. Uh, That's the gallery I'm working with. Yes, and I'm studio all day, every day when I'm not teaching. Hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're in Boston, go hit up Yoan Studio <laughs> or see his shows when they are up. Thank um, you. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Yoan. This was a great conversation. Good to reconnect with you. Amazing Have time to talk to uh, order friend and pure scholar now. That's great. All right. So thank you so much for watching. This has been the Artcast <laughs> number six. Stay tuned for more. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Okay, good.